The talk tonight is about the sure heart's release, the sure heart's release. In our practice, we begin to understand more and more deeply the changing, evanescent reality of this body-mind process. We see this through the moment-to-moment awareness of our practice. We're able to see it more and more deeply because of the continuity of our practice, which brings about a stronger concentration in this moment-to-moment understanding. We learn how to bring a tender, compassionate awareness to our experience when that's needed. And it's usually needed every moment. (laughs) So that the heart and mind can open, so that it can unfurl, so that when there are places we feel closed in upon ourselves, those places can open. We learn how to be courageously clear so that we can bring this kind of sobering honesty to whatever is happening. Even when it's difficult, we don't just rush to what's more comfortable. We can open, we can stay with, we can be courageous with what's painful sometimes. And with this beautiful balance that we learn for ourselves and with each one is different, When this balance happens, it enables us to see the path more clearly, to see where we are, of course, and to see where we are going. We understand what is unwholesome and what leads to pain, what leads to suffering, and we learn to relinquish that. We understand and see very clearly what is wholesome what leads to the end of suffering for ourselves, for others, what leads to ever-deepening peace and happiness. And we learn to cultivate that. And with these two as a basis, there is the beginning of the development of wisdom with these two as a basis, inclining away from the unwholesome and inclining towards the wholesome, cultivating those. It's the beginning of the development of liberating wisdom, liberating the heart and the mind from ignorance or delusion, greed, attachment, ill will, hatred, all of the various forms of these, what are called the three poisons of the mind and the heart. And for most of us, this happens in ever-deepening ways as we practice. It doesn't happen all at once. It's a very rare being for whom it happens all at once. It usually takes um, years and it, it goes in stages, usually. So that when we develop in this way, no matter what happens outside of us, no matter what stones are thrown into the pond of our awareness or our being or our minds, Whatever happens outside of us in this ever-fluxing world of joy and sorrow, gain and loss, uh, it's okay deep in our hearts. It can be okay. Even when the habit patterns inwardly repeat themselves over and over again, we can hold them lightly. We don't have to make something solid or a monolith of self out of them. So deep within very deep within, 
and beyond the pleasure and pain, there is this wisdom that can experience life clearly, that can know how to incline and respond skillfully. So in practicality, we learn how to rely on ourselves very confidently. No matter what happens, we are protected. We're greatly protected by our sincere intention, our sincere motivation, no matter what anybody says or does. We know we can wait if there are ripples in our hearts. We know we can wait before we respond or reply or react in ways which we don't trust uh, so much in the beginning until the ripples die down. So tonight I want to talk about how our practice produces these various refinements of happiness and peace as we go along on our path. And how this happiness and peace is not gained from what we acquire, whether it's uh, something material or whether we acquire spiritual information from books or from people outside of us or even spiritual understanding from our own practice, meditative states of concentration or deep calm. These come along the way, but these kinds of acquirements are, uh, it's not about attaining even any of these, but it comes from letting go, purifying the heart and mind of ignorance mainly, delusion, and along with that, of course, greed in all its various forms, delusion in all its various forms, hatred. Delusion is uh, the concepts and stories we tell ourselves, we repeat and believe over and over again that aren't true, really. They're habit patterns, deep habit patterns. They're wrong understandings we base everything on that we keep clinging to and we don't see more deeply than that. So this process of mindful awareness that we're all engaged in has immediate and far-reaching benefits. And I want to talk about the immediate and especially the far-reaching benefits, which is about the sure heart's release the Buddha spoke of. So regarding the immediate benefit, this is what uh, Sogyal Rinpoche said, the practice of mindfulness unveils and reveals your essential good heart because it dissolves and removes the unkindness or the harm in you. Only when you have removed the harm in yourself do you become really useful to others. When I first started practicing, I was searching for some peace of mind, just as simple as that uh, in my day-to-day life, some kind of happiness, some kind of calm that I could go to within me that I didn't have to depend on uh, someone else producing for me. And, um, and that, was, that was fine. That was a good first step for me. I, um, when I first started in the Dharma, I was a single parent and I had three little children and was definitely a hell realm to uh, be in that place. And there was, um, but there, of course, there were lovely, wonderful children. And um, 
I went to this big spiritual fair in California where I, I moved from the Philippines to California with my three children. And they were all, you know, at that time going into this big auditorium with these, all these uh, things offered in the spiritual fair, all kinds of booths from every different tradition you could think of. Hindu and Buddhist and Sufi traditions and drumming and all of that, dancing, all of that. So the children were pulling on my, my shirt tails and um, wanting to eat and not wanting to be there and whining and crying and all of that. And I walked in in a place that was probably twice as big, at least twice as big as this or even three times as big. And I walked in the door, and in the right-hand corner, far in the corner, there was this sign that I could read, and it said, Silent Retreat. And I just, I didn't look at anything else. I just went directly to that sign, and I signed up for my first um, weekend retreat. And that's how I got started. I was looking for some little peace of mind, some little calm in my life, um, some kind of place where I could find I could be happy. And of course, you know, I have a lot of happiness with the children, but there wasn't a lot of time to just be with um, the wind in the trees or the sound of the birds or just a moment where I could be with myself. Not very much time. So I went to that retreat. And from the beginning, in that very retreat, and soon after that is when I met Manindraji, one of our first teachers in the Dharma. And um, it was made very, very clear to me from the very beginning that that kind of calm that I was seeking, that kind of peace and happiness uh, that I wanted to have, was indeed part of the benefits and uh, part of the package along the way of Uh, training the mind and opening the heart. It was a great aspiration, but it wasn't the ultimate aim of the Buddha, that the Buddha had a far-reaching aim, more far-reaching aim than that. And so there was always this this, um, understanding of Nibbana and the unconditioned that we were exposed to in those days. And I really appreciate that because I never settled for anything less than that. And my path isn't finished yet, of course, but that was always the aim for me. It was uh, not anything less than that. So there is this possibility to realize this unconditional peace and happiness that I took in from the very beginning, this unshakable deliverance of the heart, of the mind, that the Buddha called the sure heart's release. So these are the words of the Buddha from the middle-length discourses. It's from the discourse on the simile of the heartwood. So the Buddha was addressing his bhikkhus, and these were those first monks who began his journey with him. And um, uh, they took up their precepts with him and the practices. And so he said to the bhikkhus, So this holy life, bhikkhus, does not have gain and honor and renown for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration for its benefit, or knowledge and vision for its benefit. But it is this unshakable deliverance of mind, the sure heart's release, that is the goal of this holy life.
its heartwood and its end. And this is the far-reaching benefit that the, these teachings, that the Dhamma, that the Buddha Sasana, the teachings of the Buddha, are offered for. The Buddha makes it very clear that the attainment of virtuous conduct in taking the precepts and really um, taking them seriously, the attainment of concentration uh, that comes with any of the samatha practices, including uh, metta, and knowledge and vision, psychic powers that come with the practice for some people who are inclined to that, are indeed part of the path, and the benefits of those are experienced and onward leading. But these are not the true goal of the holy life. The sure heart's release is about um, being released from the endless cycles of suffering, not just in this life, but the tendencies that remain in our hearts that Steve was speaking about last night, the tendencies that remain in our hearts that even though we feel freed from them momentarily by the bringing of mindfulness to them or the bringing of... um, of metta to them, we might be freed momentarily, but there are still tendencies there that can arise. And these tendencies are said to be totally uprooted in this sure heart's release, in this deep uh, liberation that the Buddha was spoke about. So this unshakable deliverance is what this is about. It's about the um, understanding uh, the experience of the unconditioned. Nibbana, we hear that word sometimes. Literally, etymologically, it means departure from craving. In um, looking it up in the Pali Dictionary, one of the descriptions is departure from craving. The eradication and the uprooting of greed, hatred, and ignorance is another definition. The extinction of suffering and the tendencies uh, of uh, the roots of, of suffering, of greed and hatred and delusion that can remain in the karmic stream. It's the establishment of unwavering wisdom in the face of changing circumstances. So how do we live this holy life going towards that goal There are different ways that the Buddha pointed this out. And um, it said that there are three areas of life that we can pay attention to. So I just wanted to present these three areas because they seem so simple to me. These are what Manindra called the three pillars of the Dharma, or Dhamma, as he would say, the three pillars of the Dhamma. And they all require the practice of mindful awareness, all three of these. The first one is a practice of dana, or giving, the practice of giving that comes from a heart or an attitude of generosity. So generosity is the attitude, giving is the action. The second area or pillar is called sila, mindfully living in harmony with others, with our community, our family, our community, our world, of course. And of course, understanding that that is needed for our inner harmony. 
And the third area is the area called bhavana. Bhavana means bringing forth or cultivating what is not yet cultivated. Bringing forth what is not yet cultivated. And bhavana, in this sense, are two different kinds. It's a development of mind, um, bringing forth what's not yet cultivated in the mind, in the heart. Mind and heart are one thing. And uh, two different areas. The first one is concentration, and the second one is a development of wisdom. Concentration is through all the tranquility or samatha practices. Again, one of them is metta and all the brahma-vihara practices. And the other is a development of wisdom through our vipassana practice. There's an ancient story that when I hear, I always um, can really picture it. And it's almost like I'm right there. There's a story of the Buddha walking in the forest with a group of monks. And he bent down and and scooped up in his one hand um, a handful of leaves. And he said to the monks, which is more, O monks, the leaves in my hand or the leaves in all the forest? And the monks said to him, which is more, of course, the leaves in all the forest? And the Buddha replied, the knowledge of the fully awakened one is like all the leaves in the forest. But what I teach is like the leaves in my hand, just this much. That is all that is needed for freedom and liberation. And when I heard this story, and of course I've heard it many times, it gives me just such a, a great relief that I don't have to know, you know, all the Abhidhamma understanding, which I, I get to know along the way a little bit. I don't have to know all the scriptures, so word by word, which they're inspiring and it's wonderful. But it's simply by understanding certain practices that maybe we can pay attention to, where we can develop and cultivate what has not been brought forth. Um, Manindra used to say frequently, simple and easy, keep it simple and easy. So I find looking at this leaves in one hand, a very simple and easy way to take in the Dhamma, to bring forth the Dhamma in my own heart. So these three areas of my life, these three pillars, have been a reliable foundation to practice, to really pay attention to, to see whether I can cultivate any one of them or each one of them more so that those practices can grow and strengthen qualities in my heart, which can bring liberating wisdom. So again, dana, the practice of giving, generosity, sila, living in harmony, and bhavana, the development of concentration and wisdom. So just as a little bit of an overview of dana and sila, not only do they promote well-being for others, but they promote well-being in ourselves, a deep sense of well-being in ourselves when we feel that we are giving of ourselves, that we are in harmony with others, we have that deep sense of harmony in ourselves, of course. And we feel our intrinsic goodness. And it's, 
It's so important to feel our intrinsic goodness. That's why we do metta, and that's why we do compassion practice and the Brahma-vihara practices, the joy practices, and the equanimity practice, to really understand that our intrinsic goodness is not so far away. It's an incredible strength to us. It's a pillar on our path. We're not so plagued by feelings of unworthiness, of disconnection, of self-deprecation. And it gives us a kind of faith and confidence in ourselves that we can face whatever there is to be faced, whatever approaches us from the outer world, whatever approaches from the inner world. We're able to face that. With the practices of bhavana, of concentration and wisdom, bringing forth the understanding we learn through our practice of our practices of concentration deep states of calm and of course concentration equanimity uh, is accessed through these practices of uh, bhavana also developing the mind joy metta all of these things uh, practices and eventually a depth of understanding that can leave us unshakably uh, faithful to our path. So first, um, just to explore more at length the first foundation of dana, then I'll explore the second one, the second foundation or pillar of sila, and then in the next talk I'll talk about bhavana. So tonight only covering the first two. So this practice of giving, it's the act of giving from the inner attitude of generosity. So it's not just a feeling. The intention is great, but it's the acting on the intention um, that makes it stronger for us. From a general perspective, dana has two aims, and both are ever-deepening qualities and understandings that come to us as we continue our practice. The first, of course, the first aim is to help others. From an attitude of generosity and the act of giving, we help others. We make it easier for them in their lives. Uh, We give of our time, our energy, our kindness, Um, We give an open heart. We give metta. Uh, We share our joy with them. We share compassion with them. We give spacious attention sometimes. And, of course, we give, sometimes we give of our material world to others, which a lot of that comes from loving kindness and compassion and all those beautiful qualities. Of course, This aim is uh, helping to relieve others of their suffering, maybe in the present moment, or maybe you know that it will help them in the future, even if presently they're okay. But you want them to be okay even uh, beyond that. One of the things I see about giving that's really a precious gift is that it gives others a sense of worthiness when you give them a gift that they're worthy of uh, anything that we give them. I have a, a little 
mm, quiet practice that I do sometimes when I see someone when we're walking down the street and maybe areas of cities that we go into where there are lots of homeless people or some homeless people. And um, as I go by somebody, I wonder, you know, apart from receiving all the loving-kindness that comes out of it when we say, may all beings receive our loving-kindness. Apart from that, I wonder sometimes if anyone has sent that particular being loving-kindness just directly, just to that person. So it gives me a great feeling to maybe quietly just offer loving-kindness. Or to say to somebody I don't know very well even, or somebody that maybe in a state of not feeling worthy of oneself, to just say out loud, I offer you my my love, I offer you my support. And how much of a gift that is to them to feel a sense of worthiness that that can be given. It gives them a sense of connection, um, a sense of inner richness, Sometimes people don't have very much, and you know they don't have very much, but they have this inner richness that's beyond compare. Um, I visited the place where Deepama lived when she was alive, when I went to Calcutta a couple of years ago. And she lived in just this small um, little place. you had to go up a lot of stairs, and it was in this noisy neighborhood, and a lot of traffic outside. But when you got inside, it was so quiet when you got to walk up the stairs. And even she had been gone. Um, she had died already a few years from there, at least, I don't know, 15, 10, I can't remember. But um, when I went to this small room, and then there was adjacent small rooms, or even maybe only one small room, I looked around and I thought, you know, here was a person that had this incredible inner richness. And she just lived in this very, very small place where her bed was and um, where she did her sitting and where she received visitors. And when I think of inner richness, I I think of people like Deepama. Probably you've, you've read about her or know about her. One of the students also of Manindraji, who actually, by Manindraji's own admission, surpassed him in her uh, uh, spiritual deepening. And he was, he was very happy about that, you know, and she was um, upheld as a, a guide for all of us. So that inner richness that it gives to them, of course. It makes them feel loved, and not just know it in their heads, but really feel loved. Um, I I read this little story from Random Acts of Kindness, and it really just touched my heart. When I was going through a very difficult time, someone called me up and played piano music for me on my answering machine. Mm -hmm. It made me feel very loved, and I never discovered who did it. And, um, yeah, feeling very loved. That, that's such a great gift we can give to people. It may inspire gratitude. You know, that's one of the aims of generosity, of giving, that we don't often ponder on, 
It may inspire gratitude within them. That's a beautiful state of mind. If we, if we know how it is to feel gratitude in our own hearts, we know what a beautiful state of mind that is and how happy it can make us feel and how it is for others. It's a great gain for others when we can inspire in them uh, gratitude. Of course, we, we don't know if that would come up, but if it does, it's a great gain for them when we give them of ourselves. And of course, it makes them happy. Um, of course, it makes them happy. So this is what we're giving. This is the, you could say, one of the aims of generosity, of giving. And the second aim, as Manindra taught me, is not, it's not just helping others, it's helping ourselves. And if you want to practice generosity with wisdom, practice uh, giving with wisdom, it's important to understand the full uh, implications of the acts of giving with the attitude of generosity, that it really does help ourselves. It helps, it supports our well-being, a very deep sense of well-being. When we give, we know, um, we can feel loving-kindness in our hearts. We, we give. Generosity brings with it loving-kindness. So we feel that. When, when we're giving. We may feel compassion, too. You know, we see or realize the suffering that another may be going through, and we, um, we have compassion within us. And from there, also, that's one of the accompanying mind states or heart states. We give from that place. When we see that they're happy, or we imagine, or we know that they'll be happy when we give them something, um, we experience their joy. And so we have joy within us, too, of course. And so uh, this is what we experience within our own hearts. Equanimity. Upandita used to always say, in order to part with what you believe is yours, there must be some equanimity there to part and with it. And so all of these wholesome states of mind get developed when we are practicing generosity, giving. And so these are very rich states of mind. It brings immediate happiness when we feel a sense of kindness in our hearts. Manindra used to say, when, when one of these wholesome states of mind are there, all of the other ones are nearby. All of the other ones are nearby. They're so easily accessible. So that happiness, it's not just, you know, because it's accompanying loving-kindness or because it's accompanying um, the kind of generosity or the feeling that we have there. But if you examine closely when you want to give a gift, before you give a gift, you can look inside and see if there's just a sense of joy in your heart to be able to give something. And when you look at that uh, beforehand, that's important to see, you know, that wholesome state of mind before giving. And at the time of giving, when we actually give the gift, we feel happy. You know, you really, there's a sense of joy in your heart. And afterwards, when you reflect on it, um, and you could reflect many times on it during the 
practices of metta or love any of the Brahma Vihara practices, sometimes we're asked to reflect on some goodness uh, that we have in our own heart. And oftentimes, I go back to a, an act of giving. And it can be something very simple. It doesn't have to be some great self-sacrificing gift. It can be something very, very small. I'm still uh, having a lot of happiness from remembering a very small gift that I gave to one of my friends in Burma. And uh, I remember I went to this retreat and I had a lot of medicines and I wanted to give it to a nun friend of mine at the end of the retreat. Give all that was left over and also some things that I had brought for her, a beautiful scarf and um, something to keep her warm, my umbrella and things that I wanted to leave with her as just as a connection. They were very small, and um, she was could use the medicines because she's a doctor. And her name is Kamala also, so we call her Ma Kamala, um, out of respect. And she was the one who would shave my head and during when I was a nun. And um, she would always come to me during practice and say, Sister, how are you today? You know, she would ask me so kindly and so like totally caring about how my practice was. And so I, at the end of the retreat, I said, I made appointment. I said, I would like to give you a gift, give you some gifts. And can we make time for that? She's very busy. She's a translator and does a lot of studying also. So she said yes, because giving is a, is a very important act in Burma, um, very important. You really want to do it with the fullness of your body, with the fullness of your heart. And so uh, we met, we had this appointment, I had my gifts in my hand, and um, then they were small, and I realized, oh, it's not very much, you know, it's not like I can give her $100. But I had the gifts in my hand, and she stood up, you know, very regally. She's also a very beautiful woman. She stood up very regally to receive my gifts. And so I was giving to her, and in Burma you give with two hands. You know, you give with your whole body. So holding the gifts and giving with two hands. And I said, I have this offering to make to you, but it's very small, very small uh, giving, very small offering. And with incredible seriousness and um, just so much understanding of the Dhamma, she said to me something that has forever rings in my mind, heart. And she said a word, Chaitana. Chaitana means, um, it's like, uh, Chaitana means, what does Chaitana mean, Steve? (laughs) Intention, motivation, intention. I kind of understand it in Pali more than I understand in English. So uh, I said, it's very small. This intention to give is very small. And she looked at me and she said, Kamala, Chaitana, or intention, is not small. Intention is not small. And so she received it as if I was giving her a castle. You know, she received it as if I was... And I was. I was giving her, like, my whole heart. And um, 
I think back on that, it gives me a lot of happiness. It gives me a lot of feeling of connection and protection in, in the Dhamma. So it develops a sense of inner wealth in, in myself. Um, it doesn't matter you know, what the material wealth is outside, because you know, as we all know, we can't take it with us. But it's that inner wealth that we are so carefully trying to develop in our lives. It counteracts uh, a sense of inner poverty, that poverty mentality that sometimes we have, I don't have enough, or um, I'm not good enough, that kind of thing. So generosity or giving is the medicine for clinging. It's the medicine for holding on. It develops an easefulness in our ability to just let go, you know, to not have to cling, not just to what we have materially, but cling to our opinions, cling to our views, cling to our need to be right, uh, our habit of blaming and resentment. So this comes again from the Buddha. If beings knew as I know the results of sharing gifts, they would not enjoy their use without sharing them with others. Nor would the taint of stinginess obsess their heart. And even if it were their last and final bit of food, they would not enjoy its use without sharing it, if there were anyone to receive it. So this was made um, experiential for me when I I had... um, I think I've told some of you stories of when Manindraji stayed with us in our house. And, you know, when he's, when he's there with you, he's really, he doesn't have much, but he's just trying to give you anything he can. You know, like you're at the table and he peels a banana and he shoves a banana in your mouth. <laughs> I think Manindra, Joseph has experienced that too. Or he's, he just, he does his food and then he's, he gives some to you because... It's important to give, you know. When he would be with us, he'd be buying gifts for everybody. You know, we'd be saying, Manindra, how are you going to take all this home? You know, there was always this big thing of, how are you going to take all this stuff home? And he'd say, well, I have to bring them to all the little children in the streets of Calcutta, these umbrellas, you know, and slippers and things like that. And he was just so giving with that. And of course gave the Dhamma, which is said to be the highest gift, is the Dhamma. And even when he wasn't well, you know, just after having surgery, um, he would give some Dhamma lesson in the morning to me. And, you know, I would try to stay awake for it. It would have to be before I went to work. And even if he could hardly sit up, sometimes he had to lay down, he would give me um, a little... Dhamma lesson in the morning, some kind of understanding, talk about the precepts, talk about giving, talk about how to be more mindful, things like that, giving or doing a parita, protective chant for me, even if he, his voice was weak. So this kind of giving, it's so far, so important, has far-reaching benefits 
the development of the mind and heart of non-greed. This is the far-reaching benefit um, that leads to freedom, ultimate freedom. Utejaniya, one of our teachers, says it's giving away your greed. This is the development of uh, dana, of generosity, giving. So as we continually practice non-clinging, it becomes natural for the mind to let go of concepts and opinions, ideas and projections, knowing um, it's just a momentary experience. It's not something that we can pin on life forever or on ourselves or on other people. It's just a momentary, evanescent experience. So, Achan Shah would say, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll have complete peace and freedom. So eventually, at the end of our lives, our physical lives, or even before then, when conditions are right because we have continually done our practice in a loving, uh, balanced way, there's a time when the mind needs to let go of all physical formations, all formations, everything arising and passing away. And the mind can easily do that when we practice letting go, can bring us to complete peace and freedom. So that is the first pillar of the Dhamma. And the second pillar is sila, or morality, living in harmony by the careful consideration and the acting out of our words and our behavior. When you look um, at it just in a very practical way, it's, it's a very deep respect for others and for ourselves, too, of course. It makes not just for harmony outside, but harmony inside because we know when there isn't harmony and we are um, acting out in ways that are not wholesome behavior, we're harming our own hearts. I don't know about you, but certain junctures in my own practice, I come to a place where I realize by my own behavior or by watching others' behavior, I say, oh, that doesn't lead to happiness. That's just not where I want to go. You know, that way of speaking, that way of acting. And so I come, I've come to certain junctures in my spiritual path where I say, I just want to clean up my act. And maybe it's fairly okay, but there's room for improvement. So I say that to myself, or I, I kind of confess that to my partner or to my colleagues. And um, I really look at the precepts again and see where I can do a little bit better, where I can make some improvement. Just in the precepts, it's a very practical uh, place to look for training. Because sometimes, you know, when we sit, it's not so easy to sit because we've broken some precepts, even when it's, um, you know, when it's very slight. They say the, the pure and pure that your heart gets, the more and more you feel when you break the precepts. It really, it really hurts your own heart to do that. So we have these precepts for that training, the training 
to undertake, um, we undertake the training to refrain from killing, from stealing, from sexual misconduct, from lying, and from taking, ingesting anything that clouds the mind. These are the five precepts. And we take great care out of compassion for ourselves and others to do that. It's important to take them seriously. It's not just, you know, repeating them in English or in Pali, but to really take a look at them and really see where, where, could, um, where are the places where I feel strong? That's, that's important. And where are the places where I waver and I'm not so sure of myself? I don't feel that I have this uh, kind of inner reliance. And so it's helpful from time to time to go there. When I look at the precepts, I, I, I really can't look at them as commandments because of the word training. I undertake this training. And also because it's my understanding that the Buddha presented these precepts to us out of great compassion because knowing just how hard it is to be human, you know, where the out of habit, where the mind would naturally go uh, sometimes to say or to do things that would harm another and, of course, to harm ourselves. So we need to remind ourselves often, over and over again, when we can. And sometimes I don't take precepts in a group, but... I'll know I need to take them alone by myself. I'll know I need to just repeat them a little bit, just to remind myself of the precepts. One of the most inspiring things about being in Burma is to hear the precepts taken. Um, Sometimes, you know, you go around a village or a Sayadaw is speaking here, or it's the morning time when people take the precepts, and you hear in the village um, all around you these, the, the Pali chant that you, you do every morning of the precepts. And um, just to remind myself, sometimes to put myself in that energetic field is really helpful for me, re- remembering when I'm there. And the last time I was there, which was last November, um, there, were, there were two floors of us women, not very many, but uh, the, the bottom floor I was on and the top floor, And we each take the precepts about the same time, but we start at different times. So one will start, and then, you know, our floor will start, or vice versa. And you just hear this reverberation of people taking great care to really look at their hearts and seeing, where am I being harmful, and can I refrain from that? And then across the way, across the reservoir, there's a men's um, hall, and where they're chanting the precepts. So you hear it there, too. And then you may hear in the village where they're chanting the precepts in the morning. And then the time I went, there were these little samaneras, and they were, there were about um, 50 of them, and every morning they would chant the precepts. So it's just feeling that you're in this field of this really wise consideration. How am I handling my life? really looking at it very carefully, repeating it. This careful attention. It's said that the proximate causes for careful attention to arise are known as the two guardians of the world. The two guardians of the world. 
And they're known in Pali, this ancient language that some of the teachings of the Buddha were recorded in, uh, as hiri. These are the Pali words, hiri and otapa. And these are the underpinnings of the precepts. These are where the precepts uh, arise from. There are many fine translators who use, who insist on just using these terms, hiri and otapa, instead of the English words that they are translated into because it's not adequate to have their English translation. I'll tell you them and you'll understand why. Hiri is translated as moral shame, but that's not associated with uh, self-aversion at all. So just to um, give you a broader and deeper perspective of that. This moral shame is an inner sense when our words and behavior don't feel right. You know, when we've said something or when we've done something and we have that cringing moment. I've had a lot of cringing moments in my life. So it's the cringing moment, you know, when we feel like our words, our behavior are hurtful somehow. It's an intuitive sense that this is hurtful to myself. It's um, this hearing, this inner sense of moral shame is about how it's hurtful to ourselves when we do that. Because, of course, when you speak or act in, with, uh, with unwholesome state of mind, it goes into your karmic stream, which will bear the fruit of unpleasant experience. We see the danger to ourselves. This is hurtful to myself. And that's a danger. It's a danger to your future. And even that present moment, when we don't feel good about that. This hearing comes out of a deep respect for one's own integrity, when we're really paying attention to it. So that's hearing, this moral shame. And otapa is moral dread or moral fear. It's a healthy form of fear. It's a fear of the defilements, how they would cause that defilements acted out in our speech and our behavior, how they would cause harm to others. We don't want that, of course. Uh, We dread that happening. We dread that happening because it will break the harmony of the community and our communal standards will be broken somehow. We might face the consequences of that, too. Um, Some of the difficulties that can come from that. One of the things that I dread a lot is um, not uh, not feeling trusted by the wise when I do something that will break these break the connection, break the trust that people might have in me. It's a healthy fear uh, that we have of being plagued by being blamed by others, being plagued by blaming ourselves in the future. So this hiri and otapa is supported a lot by mindfulness. When we're really mindful, we feel that. We know when they arise. One time I was um, not too many um, retreats ago when I was in Burma, 
I was having this, this fear of um, come up over and over again because I was having unwholesome thoughts about someone. And uh, when the thoughts would come up, it was like I was having this kind of fear. And I went to um, Seda Upandita and I said, I don't know, this fear is coming up. I didn't think of Hiriyotapa. I said, this fear is coming up, but I don't really fear that person at all. And uh, I, I, I don't know what's happening. And he said, oh, he said, you fear that this will be planted in your mind stream. And it will, it will come up again where there will be suffering in your own life. So I saw that um, very clearly in that moment. Recently, a friend told me that she had an interaction where she felt really hurt and reactive and wanted to say something right away, but she didn't. And this is a friend that actually um, has been studying right speech for a long, long time. And she's really watching her speech. But she said she waited until she could rely on herself to respond skillfully. She just kind of put that Dharma duct tape on her mouth, and she didn't say anything. She just waited. And when that happened, she had a deep sense of being able to rely on herself, that very wholesome sense and kind of happiness about herself arose. And uh, also, she didn't want to hurt others. You know, she could see by just a little bit of holding back, she could see, boy, if I said that, that would cause a lot of problems for another person. They would think about it, they would get hurt, and also cause some problems for me, of course. So there's respect for oneself, that's hiri, and respect for another, that's otapa. The Buddha said, this magnificent chariot of the Noble Eightfold Path has hiri otapa as its backrest. If you have this backrest, you will have something to rely on, depend on, something on which you can sit comfortably as you travel toward your aspiration. If these qualities are weak, he or she risks losing mindfulness and all the dangers that ensue. So this sila is a beautiful form of renunciation. In, in the various precepts, letting go of uh, killing, restraining from killing or harming is letting go of hatred, ill will, aversion. Uh, letting go of stealing, uh, renouncing, restraining oneself, refraining from stealing is letting go of attachment or clinging to what we want. And all the others have something to do with delusion, attachment, aversion in one way or another. So it's a beautiful form of renunciation when we refrain from acting out speech and behavior that will harm others. We are also refraining from harming ourselves. And this lays a very important foundation. This is a a strengthening of that pillar upon which uh, the Dhamma can develop in our hearts. A moment of sila is a moment of deep protection. So these are the foundations uh, of the practice. Dana and sila, which I spoke about.
um, this evening, and then I will speak about bhavana and the next time I'm here to speak with you. So I'd like to end with um, the sure heart's release again, the words of the Buddha. So this holy life, bhikkhus, does not have gain and honor and renown for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration for its benefit, or knowledge and vision for its benefit. But it is this unshakable deliverance of mind and heart, the sure heart's release, that is the goal of this holy life, its heartwood and its end. So let's sit for a moment. Let the words dissolve. 